be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Cricket on the Hearth, Chapter 2, Chapter the Second, Part 3. In the last part, Mr. Tackleton's mother-in-law-to-be had just made some awkward remarks regarding the upcoming nuptials at the lunch with the Plumers and the Peerybingles. In this part, John has a revelation regarding Dot's odd behaviour around their elderly visitor. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. As these remarks were quite unanswerable, which is the happy property of all remarks that are sufficiently wide of the purpose, they changed the current of the conversation and diverted the general attention to the veal and ham pie, the cold mutton, the potatoes and the tart. In order that the bottled beer might not be slighted, John Peerybingle proposed tomorrow, the wedding day, and called upon them to drink a bumper to it before he proceeded on his journey. For you ought to know that he only rested there and gave the old horse a bait. He had to go some four or five miles farther on, and when he returned in the evening, he called for Dot and took another rest on his way home. This was the order of the day on all the picnic occasions, had been ever since their institution. There were two persons present besides the bride and the bridegroom-elect, who did but indifferent honour to the toast. One of these was Dot, too flushed and discomposed to adapt herself to any small occurrence of the moment. The other, Bertha, who rose up hurriedly before the rest and left the table. Goodbye, said stout John Peerybingle, 
pulling on his dreadnought coat. I shall be back at the old time. Goodbye, all. Goodbye, John, returned Caleb. He seemed to say it by rote and to wave his hand in the same unconscious manner, for he stood observing Bertha with an anxious, wondering face that never altered its expression. Goodbye, young shaver, said the jolly carrier, bending down to kiss the child, which Tilly Slowboy, now intent upon her knife and fork, had deposited to sleep and strange to say, without damage, in a little cot of Bertha's furnishing. Goodbye. Time will come, I suppose, when you'll turn out into the cold, my little friend, and leave your old father to enjoy his pipe and his rheumatics in the chimney corner, eh? Where's Dot? I'm here, John she said, starting. Come, come, returned the carrier, clapping his sounding hands. Where's the pipe? I quite forgot the pipe, John. Forgot the pipe? Was such a wonder ever heard of? She forgot the pipe. I'll... I'll fill it directly. It's soon done. But it was not so soon done either. It lay in the usual place, the carrier's dreadnought pocket, with the little pouch, her own work, from which she used to fill it. But her hand shook so that she entangled it, and yet her hand was small enough to have come out easily. I'm sure, and bungled terribly. The filling of the pipe and the lighting it, those little offices in which I have commended her discretion, were vilely done, from first to last. During this whole process, Tackleton stood looking on maliciously with half-closed eye, which whenever it met hers, or caught it, for it can hardly be said to have ever have met another eye, rather being a kind of trap to snatch it up, augmented her confusion in a most remarkable degree. Why, what a clumsy dot you are this afternoon, said John. I could have done it better myself. I verily believe. With these good-natured words, he strode away, and presently was heard, in company with Boxer and the old horse and the cart, making lively music down the road. What time did the dreamy Caleb still stood, watching his blind daughter, with the same expression on his face. Bertha, said Caleb, softly. What has happened? How changed you are, my darling, 
in a few hours since this morning. You silent and dull all day. What is it? Tell me. Oh, father, father, cried the blind girl, bursting into tears. Oh, my hard, hard fate. Caleb drew his hand across his eyes before he answered her. But think how cheerful and how happy you've been, Bertha. How good and how much loved by many people. That strikes me to the heart, dear father. Always so mindful of me. Always so kind to me. Caleb was very much perplexed to understand her. To be, to be blind, Bertha, my poor dear, he faltered, is a great affliction, but... I have never felt it, cried the blind girl. I have never felt it in its fullness, never. I've sometimes wished I could see you, or could see him, only once, dear father. Only for one little minute, that I might know what it is I treasure up. She laid her hands upon her breast. And hold here, that I might be sure and have it right. And sometimes, but then I was a child. I have wept in my prayers at night to think that when your images ascended from my heart to heaven, they might not be the true resemblance of yourselves. But I have never had these feelings long. They have passed away and left me tranquil and contented. And they will again, said Caleb. But father, oh my good, gentle father, bear with me if I am wicked, said the blind girl. This is not the sorrow that so weighs me down. Her father could not choose but let his moist eyes overflow. She was so earnest and pathetic but he did not understand her yet. Bring her to me, said Bertha. I cannot hold it close and shut within myself. Bring her to me, father. She knew he hesitated and said, May, bring May. May heard the mention of her name, and coming quietly towards her, touched her on the arm. The blind girl turned immediately, and held her by both hands. Look into my face, dear heart, sweet heart, said Bertha. Read it with your beautiful eyes, and tell me 
if the truth is written on it. Dear Bertha, yes. The blind girl still, upturning the blank, sightless face, down which the tears were coursing fast, addressed her in these words. There is not, in my soul, a wish or thought that is not for your good, bright May. There is not, in my soul, a grateful recollection stronger than the deep remembrance which is stored there of the many, many times when, in the full pride of sight and beauty, you have had consideration for blind Bertha, even when we two were children, or when Bertha was as much a child as ever blindness can be. Every blessing on your head, light upon your happy course, not the less, my dear May. And she drew towards her in a closer grasp. Not the less, my bird, because today the knowledge that you are to be his wife has wrung my heart almost to breaking. Father, May, Mary, oh, forgive me that it is so, for the sake of all he has done to relieve the weariness of my dark life and for the sake of the belief you have in me, when I call heaven to witness that I could not wish him married to a wife more worthy of his goodness. While speaking, she had released May Fielding's hands and clasped her garments in an attitude of mingled supplication and love. Sinking lower and lower down as she proceeded in her strange confession, she dropped at last at the feet of her friend and hid her blind face in the folds of her dress. Great power, exclaimed her father, smitten at one blow with the truth. Have I deceived her from cradle? but to break her heart at last. It was well for all of them that Dot, that beaming, useful, busy little Dot, for such she was, whatever faults she had, and however you may learn to hate her, in good time. It was well for all of them, I say, that she was there, or where this would have ended, it were hard to tell. But Dot, recovering her self-possession, interposed before May could reply, or Caleb say another word. Come, come, dear Bertha, come away with me. Give her your arm, May. So, how composed she is, you see, already, and how good it is of her to mind us 
said the cheery little woman, kissing her upon the forehead. Come away, dear Bertha, come, and here's her good father will come with her, won't you? To be sure. Well, well, she was a noble little dot in such things, and it must have been an obdurate nature that could have withstood her influence. When she had got poor Caleb and his Bertha away, that they might comfort and console each other, as she knew they only could, she presently came bouncing back. The saying is, as fresh as any daisy, I say fresher, to mount guard over that bridling little piece of consequence in the cap and glove, and prevent the dear old creature from making discoveries. So bring me the precious baby Tilly, she said, drawing a chair to the fire. And while I have it in my lap, here's Mrs. Fielding, Tilly. Will tell me all about the management of babies and put me right in twenty points where I'm as wrong as can be. Won't you, Mrs. Fielding? Not even the Welsh giant, who, according to the popular expression, was so slow as to perform a fatal surgical operation upon himself in emulation of a juggling trick achieved by his arch-enemy at a breakfast-table. Not even he fell half so readily into the snare prepared for him as the old lady did into this artful pitfall. The fact of Tackleton having walked out, and furthermore, of two or three people having been talking together at a distance for two minutes, leaving her to her own resources, was quite enough to have put her on her dignity, and the bewilderment of that mysterious convulsion in the indigo trade for four and twenty hours. But this becoming deference to her experience on the part of the young mother was so irresistible that after a short affectation of humility she began to enlighten her with the best grace in the world and sitting bolt upright before the wicked dot she did, in half an hour, deliver more infallible domestic recipes and precepts than would, if acted on, have utterly destroyed and done up the young Peary Bingle, though he had not been an infant Samson. To change the theme, Dot did a little needlework. She carried the contents of a whole workbox in her pocket. However she contrived it, I don't know. Then did a little nursing. Then a little more needlework. Then had a little whispering chat with May, while the old lady dozed, and so, in little bits of bustle, 
which was quite her manner always, found it a very short afternoon. Then, as it grew darker, and as it was a solemn part of this institution of the picnic, that she should perform all Bertha's household tasks, she trimmed the fire and swept the hearth and set the tea board out and drew the curtain and lighted a candle. Then she played an air or two on a rude kind of harp, which Caleb had contrived for Bertha, and played them very well, for nature had made her delicate little ear as choice as one for music as it would have been for jewels if she had had any to wear. By this time, it was the established hour for having tea, and Tackleton came back again to share the meal and spend the evening. Caleb and Bertha had returned some time before, and Caleb had sat down to his afternoon work. But he couldn't settle to it, poor fellow, being anxious and remorseful for his daughter. It was touching to see him sitting idle on his working stool, regarding her so wistfully, and always saying in his face, Have I deceived her from cradle but to break her heart? When it was night and tea was done, and Dot had nothing more to do in washing up the cups and saucers, in a word, for I must come to it, and there is no use putting it off. When the time drew nigh for expecting the carrier's return in every sound of distant wheels, her manner changed again. Her colour came and went, and she was very restless. Not as good wives are when listening for their husbands. No, no, no. It was another sort of restlessness from that. Wheels heard, a horse's feet, the barking of a dog, the gradual approach of all the sounds, the scratching paw of Boxer at the door. Whose step is that? cried Bertha, starting up. Whose step? returned the carrier, standing in the portal, with his brown face ruddy as a winter berry from the keen night air. Why, mine. The other step, said Bertha. The man's treading behind you. She is not deceived, observed the carrier, laughing. Come along, sir. You'll be welcome, never fear. He spoke in a loud tone, and as he spoke, the deaf old gentleman entered. He's not so much a stranger that you haven't seen him once, Caleb, said the carrier. You'll give him house room till we go. Oh, surely, John, and take it as our honour. 
He's the best company on earth to talk secrets in, said John. I have reasonably good lungs, but he tries them, I can tell you. Sit down, sir. All friends here, glad to see you. When he had imparted this assurance, in a voice that amply corroborated what he had said about his lungs, he added in his natural tone, A chair in the chimney corner, and leave to sit quite silent and look pleasantly about him, is all he cares for. He's easily pleased. Bertha had listened intently. She called Caleb to her side when he had set the chair and asked him, in a low voice, to describe their visitor. When he had done so, truly now, with scrupulous fidelity, she moved, for the first time since he had come in, and sighed, and seemed to have no further interest concerning him. The carrier was in high spirits, good fellow that he was, and fonder of his little wife than ever. A clumsy dot she was this afternoon, he said, encircling her with his rough arm, as she stood, removed from the rest. And yet I like her somehow. See yonder dot. He pointed to the old man. She looked down. I think she trembled. He's, ha ha, he's full of admiration for you, said the carrier. Talked of nothing else the whole way here. Why, he's a brave old boy. I like him for it. I wish he had had a better subject, John, she said, with an uneasy glance around the room. At Tackleton, especially. A better subject, cried the jovial John. There's no such thing. Come, off with the great coat, off with the thick shawl, off with the heavy wrappers, and a cosy half hour by the fire. My humble service, mistress. A game at cribbage, you and I. That's hearty. The cards and board, Dot. And a glass of beer here, if there's any left, small wife. His challenge was addressed to the old lady, who accepted it with gracious readiness. They were soon engaged upon the game. At first, the carrier looked about him sometimes, with a smile, or now and then, called Dot to peep over his shoulder at his hand and advise him on some knotty point. But his adversary being a rigid disciplinarian and subject to an occasional weakness in respect of pegging more than she was entitled to, required such vigilance on his part as left him neither eyes nor ears to spare. Thus, his whole attention gradually became absorbed upon the cards, and he thought of nothing else until a hand upon his shoulder restored him to a consciousness.
of Tackleton. I'm sorry to disturb you, but a word directly. I'm going to deal, returned the carrier. It's a crisis. It is, said Tackleton. Come here, man. There was that in his pale face which made the other rise immediately and ask him, in a hurry, what the matter was. Hush, John Peary Bingle, said Tackleton. I'm sorry for this. I am indeed. I have been afraid of it. I have suspected it from the first. What is it? asked the carrier with a frightened aspect. Hush, I'll show you, if you'll come with me. The carrier accompanied him, without another word. They went across a yard, where the stars were shining, and by a little side door, into Tackleton's own counting house, where there was a glass window commanding the ware-room, which was closed for the night. There was no light in the counting-house itself, but there were lamps in the long, narrow ware-room, and consequently the window was bright. A moment, said Tackleton. Can you bear to look through that window, do you think? Why not? returned the carrier. A moment more, said Tackleton. Don't commit any violence. It's of no use. It's dangerous, too. You're a strong-made man, and you might do murder before you know it. The carrier looked at him in the face and recoiled a step as if he had been struck. In one stride, he was at the window, and he saw, Oh, shadow on hearth! Oh, truthful cricket! Oh, perfidious wife! He saw her, with the old man, old no longer, but erect and gallant, bearing in his hand the false white hair that had won his way into their desolate and miserable home. He saw her listening to him as he bent his head to whisper in her ear, and suffering him to clasp her round the waist as they moved slowly down the dim wooden gallery towards the door by which they had entered. He saw them stop and saw her turn to have the face, the face he loved so, so presented to his view, and saw her, with her own hands, adjust the lie upon his head, laughing, as she did it, at his unsuspicious nature. He clenched his strong right hand at first, as if it would have beaten down a lion. But opening it immediately again, he spread it out 
before the eyes of Tackleton. For he was tender of her, even then. And so, as they passed out, fell down upon a desk, and was as weak as an infant. He was wrapped up to the chin, and busy with his horse and parcels, when she came into the room, prepared for going home. Now, John dear, good night, May, good night, Bertha. Could she kiss them? Could she be blithe and cheerful in her parting? Could she venture to reveal her face to them without a blush? Yes. Tackleton observed her closely, and she did all this. Tilly was hushing the baby, and she crossed and recrossed Tackleton a dozen times, repeating drowsily. Did the knowledge that it was to be its wives, then, wring its heart almost to breaking? And did its fathers deceive it from its cradle, but to break its heart at last? Now, Tilly, give me the baby. Good night, Mr. Tackleton. Where's John? For goodness sake. He's going for a walk beside the horse's head, said Tackleton, who helped her to her seat. My dear John, walk, tonight. The muffled figure of her husband made a hasty sign in the affirmative, and the false stranger and the little nurse being in their places, the old horse moved on. Boxer, the unconscious boxer, running on before, running back, running round and round the cart, and barking as triumphantly and merrily as ever. When Tackleton had gone off likewise, escorting May and her mother home, poor Caleb sat down by the fire beside his daughter, anxious and remorseful at the core, and still saying in his wistful contemplation of her, Have I deceived her from cradle, but to break her heart at the last? The toys that had been set in motion for the baby had all stopped and run down long ago. In the faint light and silence, the imperturbably calm dolls, the agitated rocking horses with distended eyes and nostrils, the old gentlemen at the street doors, standing half doubled up upon their falling knees and ankles, the wry-faced nutcrackers, the very beasts upon their way into the ark in twos, like a boarding school out walking, might have been imagined to be stricken motionless with fantastic wonder at Dot being false, or Tackleton beloved, under any combination of circumstances. <laughs>